Hello, and welcome to Iceland Review. Today we're talking with staff writer Ragnar Thomas on his piece, Closer to the Stars, the story of Jon Snorri's final track to K2. Closer to the Stars, the story of Jon Snorri's final track to K2. The Savage Mountain. When Jon Snorri Sigurjonsson was 14 years old, he flipped open a magazine and fell in love with a mountain. From that point onward, he would later remark, there was only one mountain in my eyes. He may have been referring to an article from 1987, which ran under the heading, Suicide or Heroism. Of the 14 tallest mountains in the world, the article begins, there is one that is more notorious and more formidable than all the rest. Its name is Shigori, but it is called K2, and it rises 8,611 meters above sea level, on the border between Pakistan and China, in the Karakoram mountain range. It straddles two climate zones, is steep on every side, and, for the most part, dawns an armor of ice. This year, the article continues, 13 people perished on K2, among them two of the most accomplished British mountaineers, Alan Rouse and Julie Tullis, both of whom managed to summit, but died in a storm on their way down. Is he always this sprightly, I inquire, on the last day of the year in 2019, from inside a crowded coffee house in downtown Reykjavik? Jon Snorri, 46, is sitting next to his wife, Lina Moe, who confirms that her husband possesses a sunny disposition, although he's not without a temper. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this, Jon Snorri explains, eyes narrowing beneath his wild, graying locks. The this to which he's referring is an attempted winter summit of K2, a thing which, since the mountain was first climbed in 1954, has never been accomplished. It is considered by some one of the last great challenges of mountaineering. Two years earlier, Jon Snorri had become the first Icelander to climb the so-called Savage Mountain, thereby fulfilling a lifelong dream. Having narrowly survived an avalanche early on in his expedition, he made it to the summit and breathlessly mouthed the words to the national anthem. But the idea of a winter expedition, when temperatures nosedive to minus 50 degrees Celsius, is an entirely different prospect. As an article in National Geographic notes, during winter on K2, quote, a dropped glove can lead to frostbite in minutes, and even a brush of bare skin against an ice axe almost certainly means a layer of lost skin. When you do get angry, I ask, what is it that upsets you? It's the small stuff, Jonsnoda replies. The strange stuff. Things people think would bother me don't bother me at all. I'm probably a little weird that way, he reflects, before breaking out into riotous laughter, the communicable kind, like that of the coming plague. Some people smile with parts of their faces. Jon Snorri beams with the entirety of his being. Unsurprisingly, he's a morning person. As a child, I would get up early, he says, and I was always cheerful on the bus. The other kids hated me for it, he laughs. School was never his thing, however. Growing up on a farm in South Iceland, a young Jonsnore would bounce into the foyer of his home and fling his book bag onto the floor, only to grab it again on his way out the following morning. He much preferred climbing in the barn or capering out in nature, 
although he's since grown less apathetic toward books. He studied business, mechanical engineering, and project management, the latter of which, it turns out, has come in handy on the mountains. Have you finished financing the expedition yet, I ask? Not entirely, but it's in the works. Tomas Rotar, a dentist from Slovenia, recently announced that he'll be contributing $40,000. It's hard to fund these things, Jon observes, especially in Iceland. People ask, what, am I supposed to pay this guy for killing himself? And then he breaks out into a peal of roaring laughter. He's not afraid of death, he explains, and when you're not afraid of dying, it doesn't bother you while you're living. We discuss his plans for K2, how he'll be ascending along the Abruzzi Spur, just like in 2017, but this time he hopes to set up Camp 4 lower than usual, beneath the so-called shoulder at 7,700 meters. That way, he tells me, I'll be out of the wind. It'll be about a 1,000-meter push to the top, and I'll try to summit while the sun's still up. Jonsnodes' 2017 expedition was dedicated to his father, the late Sjöron Blaufeldt, who passed away from cancer in 2016. He was an especially sharp guy, kind, a friend to all, Jonsnodes remarks, before taking a moment to reflect. More than anything, I suppose, my father taught me never to utter a bad word about anyone. He was always... He pauses... I remember the one time he said something not entirely positive about another person. A man who calls himself that, my father said, in reference to some title that the man had adopted, is not a particularly bright man. John laughs, obviously charmed by his late father's sense of restraint. I've often thought about that quality of his, he continues, how he tried not to judge. And the inspiration behind this trip, Lena Moe interjects, reminding her husband that the current expedition is not without its design. Right, right, to be the first man to climb K2 in winter, and that's what's going to put Iceland on the map. Of all the 8,000ers, it's the only invincible mountain in wintertime, and that which is done for the first time will never be taken back, he declares. Lena Moe nods her head. She's always been supportive of Jan's dreams. The two of them were married earlier this month, a friend of mine owns a dance studio, and we arranged a flash dance in church, she says, when asked about the ceremony. People popped out of their seats to Bruno Mars's Marry Me, to the obvious delight of Jon Snore and those present. On January 31, 2020, the week that Jon Snore arrived at base camp, a debate broke out in the editorial offices of this magazine. That age-old question which has haunted mountaineering since its formal development came to the fore. The question of why. Why would a person residing in one of the most prosperous societies in the world go through the trouble of financing an expedition to what Polish climber Adam Bielecki called, quote, the worst place on earth, and that during the worst possible conditions? Even during summer, Fewer people have stood triumphant at the pinnacle of K2 than have zoomed through outer space. And so, on that morning, a line was drawn between the tables and the chairs, dividing a tribe of people united by their affinity for questions, a people who, in light of this inclination, when told, if you have to ask, you'll never understand, could do nothing but attack the prohibiting logic of the statement with more questions. But those questions were derived from two different points of view. 
The former refused to overlook the unnecessary recklessness of the task, especially in light of the six children who would be waiting for Yon Snore at home, while the latter remained sympathetic to the autonomy of the spirit, arguing that there is something within humankind, something that has spurred our species' march toward progress and freedom, which cannot stand the sight of some unconquerable thing, no matter how manufactured or artificial the circumstances of that unconquerable thing may seem. The latter perspective was more eloquently formulated by the late Englishman George Mallory, who took part in the first three British expeditions to Mount Everest in the 1920s. In one of the most famous passages in all of mountaineering literature, Mallory points to that central fire of human nature. If you cannot understand that there is something in man which responds to the challenge of this mountain and goes out to meet it, that the struggle is a struggle of life itself upward and forever upward, then you won't see why we go. Nevertheless, Mallory admitted that those who took the high line with mountaineering had, quote, much to explain. Given the notoriously hazardous nature of mountaineering, the risk of death could only be justified if it afforded the climber, quote, some good for his soul put him in touch with higher emotions. Mere pleasure and physical sensation was not enough. Jon Snorre's first notable success in climbing was Mont Blanc in 2014. Having reached the summit in relatively low visibility, Jon Snorre stood alone for about 40 minutes and felt nothing, much less any higher emotions. As he took stock of the environment, casually snapping a few photographs, he thought to himself... I just hope that one day I'll be able to tell someone somewhere that I enjoyed all of this. It wasn't until later, when he shared a few pictures online, during his descent of the mountain, that the emotions finally washed over him. On February 12, 2020, I bumped into a haggard Jon Snorre as he was dropping off his boys at preschool. Just a week earlier, he had been forced to call off his winter expedition, following a series of dubious incidents. The anger has only recently subsided, he told me. Jon Snorri would go on to reveal that his international team of climbers had arrived in Islamabad in early January, but had been delayed by the Chinese mountaineer Gao Li and the Sherpa Mingma Ji, who had arrived five days behind schedule. The ensuing events would lead Jon Snorri and the Slovenian Tomasz Rotar to question whether their teammates ever intended a sincere push to the summit. It was not only that Mingma Ji and Gao Li had arrived late, Yonsnore observed, but that they had complained of cold weather and soaking tents when, arguably, such a thing was to be expected. Furthermore, there was the suspiciously brief duration of some of the team members' visas, the surprising inadequacy of food supplies, and a questionable injury sustained by one of the Sherpas. When Gao Li called it quits, having decided to return to China following news of the COVID-19 outbreak, Mingma Ji tagged along, for he had caught a bad cold, and left Thomas and Yon with something of a bad taste in their mouths. Mingma Ji would deny these allegations on Facebook, writing that the conditions on the mountain had been worse than expected. Although he had believed he and his fellow Nepalese climbers had been experienced enough to attempt K2 in winter, they discovered that the environment in the Karakoram was completely different from Nepal. 
Our camp was completely covered in snow, Mingma wrote, and we had nights with less than minus 30 degrees Celsius in base camp. We would be stupid climbers if we continued in such cold temperature, as we could lose our hands and legs to frostbite. On February 27th, an article appeared in Morkenbladet, where the apparent rift between Jon Snorre and Mingma Ji was transposed into rivalry. Jon Snorre has not given up his dream, the article read, and is planning a second winter attempt in a year's time. Mingma Ji has also announced similar plans, but after three years. It is clear that the race to the first winter summit of K2 is nowhere near finished. Shortly thereafter, the world went into lockdown. The name K2 originates from Britain's Great Trigonometrical Survey of India. In 1856, a field worker by the name of T.G. Montgomery dragged his theodolite to an altitude of over 4,500 meters and trained it on the Karakoram. He labeled the two highest peaks K1, now known as Masherbrum, and K2. It was later discovered that the Balti people called K2 Shigori, which means simply Great Mountain, but the name K2 stuck, owing in some small part, perhaps, to its otherworldly evocation. As noted by the Italian mountaineer Fosco Moreni, K2 is a name instinct with mystery and suggestion, one that accords nicely with the alienness of that which it signifies. All rock and ice and storm and abyss, Moreni writes, K2 is often referred to as the most dangerous mountain on earth, a characterization that owes not only to its sheer loftiness, its gelid environment and its remoteness from civilization, but also to its peculiar dangers, like that posed by the infamous rack that overhangs the bottleneck, a treacherous couloir that leads to the summit. It sits there right above your head in the stratosphere at 8,000 meters, the Irish endurance athlete Jason Black, who summited K2 in 2018, said of the Serac in a recent interview. And you can hear it cracking, making loads of noises. And when you get to the point where you can't climb any higher, you've got to traverse run the side of it. And at all times, you're absolutely shitting it. On your left-hand side is 2,000 meters of a vertical drop. And on your right-hand side, there's a Serac the size of 12 cathedrals. You're trying to do this in a very alien environment, 14% oxygen, negative 30 degrees Celsius, with the dexterity in your hand is crippling, your mask is choked with saliva that's coming out of your mouth, the inside of your nose is torn to shreds with frostbite, your goggles are steaming up, you're just cleaning these little circles. K2 is not one to mess with, Black later confessed. Would I go back? I don't think I ever would. It's somewhere I don't ever... I don't ever want to see it again. I know that sounds terrible, but it's a one-trick pony for me. But Jon Snorri returned. Again. On Friday, January 29th, 2021, Jon Snorri had spent almost two months on K2. He had been accompanied by the legendary Pakistani climber Muhammad Ali Saad Parah, who, among other successes had completed the first winter ascent of Nanga Parbat in 2016, and his son, Sajid Ali, who in 2019 had become the youngest person to climb K2, then only 19 years old. Conditions in the mountain were expectedly brutal. 
Temperatures shivered around minus 30 degrees Celsius in base camp, blue ice resisted the spikes of crampons, and rocks regularly hurtled down the slopes of the mountain, not to mention the occasional avalanche. And then there was the wind. Just a few days earlier, a gale on Camp 3 had whisked Ali Satpura's backpack off the mountain, destroying two oxygen masks and eventually repulsing the climbers back down to base camp. Worst of all, perhaps, a shadow had fallen upon Jonsnore's expedition. One cast by a troop of ten Nepalese climbers, including Mingma Ji, who on January 16th had become the first team in history to ascend K2 in winter. Despite being relegated to second place at best, Jonsnore and his companions remained determined to reach the top, and now a window of opportunity appeared to be opening. Writing on social media that Friday, Jonsnore declared his intentions of summiting on February 5th. He hoped to make it from Camp 3 to the summit in 14 hours, with a relatively brief stopover at Camp 4. Once they reached the top, however, they would only be halfway there, Jonsnore acknowledged, for the most dangerous part of the expedition was the descent. It always worries my wife, he wrote, for that's when 80% of the fatalities occur. On February 4th, Tomas Rotar, now climbing with the Seven Summits expedition, reached a crowded Camp 3 on a beautiful afternoon, only to discover that there were not enough tents. He found refuge with an American named O. Brady, and would later say that he owed the man his toes, if not his life. Jon Snore and his two companions faced a similar moral conundrum. Whether to offer sanctuary to other tentless climbers, and thereby forego any hope of real rest, or to turn them out and have space enough to change socks, stretch their legs, hydrate and cook. In the end, they did the humane thing. When Tomas Rotar left for the summit at 9 p.m., accompanied by a Sherpa called Temba, he made good progress until he reached a huge crevasse at around 8,000 meters. In the darkness, he could see no way around it. Some 150 meters to the right, there was a rope, but it was too slack to be safe. Temba, who was having problems with his O2 system, deemed the fissure insurmountable and turned around. Rotar decided to follow him. On his way down the mountain, the Slovenian came across Jon Snore, who, despite looking tired and moving slowly, remained determined. Rotar tried to dissuade his former partner from continuing onward, citing the unnavigable crevasse above them. But Jon Snore insisted. I will try to cross it. Watching his friend labor up the mountain, Rotar thought to himself, What the heck? and decided to go after him. When he caught up with Yon, he led him to the slack rope and iterated his point about the crevasse. Before long, Rotar bade Yon Snore farewell. I can't jump across it. I have to go down. Good luck. It would be the last time that he saw him. On January 31st, 2019, before we took our leave of the coffee house, I proposed one final question to Jon Snore. Is there something that you're rarely asked about, I inquired, something that you'd like to discuss but that you haven't been able to during all these interviews? Jon Snore paused. He began saying something, stopped, and began again. It's the solitude. You're alone a lot. People don't realize... Even though you're part of a team, you're always by yourself, in the tent, while climbing. It can really get to some people. 
I've seen them pack up their belongings and leave. He paused. The key for me is positivity. In 2017, it really meant a lot to me, receiving greetings from people back home. It warmed me up somehow. I imagine that time moves quite slowly, I ask. It's a question of whether or not you're having fun. I find that time moves along rather nicely. Not everyone agrees, of course, but you have to be okay with the solitude. On the evening of Saturday, February 6th, I wrote the following words in my diary. That morning, we woke to news of Jon Snore having gone missing on K2. Ingen, my wife, quite upset. Me too. Chances are slim to none. Hope he managed to bury himself in the snow and waited out. It would be another five months after the Ukrainian mountaineer Valentin Sipovin reached Camp 4 at the end of July that a picture of what happened began to emerge. In the early hours of February 5th, Yon Snore, Ali Sadpara, Sajid Ali, and a Chilean mountaineer by the name of Juan Pablo Moore, who had joined the three men's push to the summit, made it across the crevasse at 8,000 meters. One of them jumped. When they reached the bottom of the bottleneck at around noon, Sajid Ali was struck with an excruciating headache. His father, who had begun climbing up the couloir, encouraged him to keep going arguing that he would feel better the higher he progressed. But as his bottle of oxygen had sprung a leak, Sajid Ali, enervated, turned back to Camp 3. On his way down, sometime between 3 and 4 p.m., Sajid jumped back across the crevasse. Looking up the mountain, he observed the three men approaching the traverse at the top of the bottleneck. They were about to mount their final push to the summit but darkness would find them in two hours' time. After they reached the summit, as most agree they did, between 5 and 7 p.m., heavy clouds began to lurk. During their descent, temperatures fell to minus 60 degrees Celsius, even lower perhaps with the chill factor, and, before long, the men were enveloped by a whiteout. By the time they reached the top of the bottleneck, exhausted and cold, they may have decided to take a break to wait out the storm. Probably the blizzard intensified. Jon Snorri was the father of six children, Tomas Rota wrote, following a tragic winter season on the Savage Mountain, which had claimed the lives of five mountaineers. A husband, a friend, an ally, and a man who a year ago twice saved me from the fate he last experienced alone. We said a brief goodbye on an icy, starry night, in the realm of death, with the promise of seeing each other again one day. Even people like me who don't believe in the afterlife find it almost impossible to accept the idea of a final meeting. Yon is probably happy. He has stayed where he is for a long day, closer to the stars than anyone, where there is room to rest without end. Thank you for that, Ragnar. In your piece, you kind of talk about this, um, you know, debate in the Iceland Review office uh, while you're writing this piece. Um, you know, whether mountaineering is this romantic expression of the adventurous spirit and the individual, or whether it is, you know, for lack of a better word. Uh, suicidal uh, and ultimately maybe wasteful. Um, 
I mean, obviously that's a loaded way to put it, uh, but what side of that debate did you come out on in writing this piece? Yeah, I mean, even before we started to interview Ernst Nare in the uh, run-up to his first expedition, there was a, a rather lively debate um, regarding whether or not this was something that we should cover um, with one side of the office sort of falling quite neatly on the side of this being a kind of fruitless and reckless endeavor, you know. And um, But the other side of the room um, to which I belonged was um, sympathetic to the notion that, you know, there's something inherent within sort of the human spirit that, that you know, is always seeking attainment of greater and greater freedom. And, and this is just one expression of that. And that this is a sort of this instinct that has, you know, led us to the moon and, and to all these extraordinary places, metaphorically speaking or or uh, literally. So uh, I have to say that, yeah, I came down squarely on the side of Jon Snorri and, um, and, and one of my points as well was that, you know, it, I'm, I'm open to the idea that, you know, because it's... it's um, one of, one of the sort of big epiphanies of the past few years in my life has been the idea that, you know, it, it's quite easy to judge behavior. I mean, that's what Twitter is all about, of, of like looking at the surface of things. But it's harder to assess the mental states that give rise to those behaviors. And maybe most difficult of all is to kind of peer into the circumstances that give rise to those mental states. Um and I think that's one of the privileges of being a journalist is, you know, you're trying to look beyond the surface into maybe the circumstances of, of, of for example, Jon Snorri's life that, that brought him to this place that made him so passionate about mountains. And, and like I mentioned in the article, he had been um, obsessed with K2 since he, was a, since he was a kid. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I fell and, and still fall squarely on that side of of the um of the table yeah sure um well you know to to prod you a little bit um you know i think that uh, definitely in mountaineering um it's one of these spheres of life in which a certain kind of 19th century rugged individualism is still very much alive um but, you know, I mean, maybe something that your piece also made me kind of think about is how, you know, yes, uh, obviously um, the person that ultimately climbs the mountain and kind of makes the ascent and gets to the summit is the individual. Um, but, you know, I mean, these things are also very much team efforts, right? I mean, uh, obviously there's the help and expertise of the Sherpas, uh the actual native climbers, um, I mean, these things are also very much kind of projects, you know, uh, having to go and find funding. I mean, there's a sense in which Jon uh, Snorri also kind of has to be like the business manager of his own enterprise and kind of finding funding for these things. You know, so, I mean, yeah, I guess maybe like what do you think of that or what would John Snorri think of that? I mean, like, like, is this just a kind of individual accomplishment or um, is there something, something else going on there? Um, no, I mean, I think definitely it's, 
he would acknowledge that it's um it's a team effort um you know not to mention as you uh, put your finger on with you know the difficulty of financing these things and and planning them you know and and sort of getting the requisite visas and all the permissions and licenses and you know the the whole sort of uh, logistics of it i mean that's you know you that's something you you can't really do alone you need other people to help you <laughs> help you um, along with that whole process but then you know the, the act of climbing the mountain itself is also a team effort and as i noted in the article i mean he was climbing with uh you know a, a pakistani legend ali satpara and his son who was um, a very accomplished climber in his own right at, at a very young age along with uh, sort of another as i gather quite um capable and formidable climber in juan pablo more so i i i catch your point that it is uh, of course you know traditionally mountaineering has been this sort of you know rugged individualistic endeavor but you know you're not going to climb k2 in winter by yourself <laughs> no certainly not no um you mentioned before when we were talking uh, that you had you know i mean kind of a personal relation uh to Gonsnori. uh do you want to just kind of talk about that briefly i mean just on a personal level when he's not on the mountain i mean what's he like yeah um so as i mentioned in the piece we, we had um children who attended the same preschool and i remember before i became acquainted with him you know just seeing him there and um obviously i i sort of recognized him from the news but there was also something very special about him as a person he was preternaturally sort of cheerful and optimistic and always wore a big smile um and then when I did meet him, um, when during our first interview in the run-up to his first expedition, um, you know, I, I had to ask him. That was one of the first questions that I put to him. And his wife was, you know, are you always so cheerful? Because uh, it was actually quite unusual. And um, he admitted that, yeah, for the most part he was. But, you know, he, got, he had a temper and he would get upset about the weirdest things, which is funny. But yeah, he was just um, just uh, seemed like a, an all round very nice guy and and really quite optimistic and cheerful. And I think that's maybe one of the the facets of of his character that led him um, to try to attempt this crazy thing, you know, to to climb K two in winter. Was that you know he was just so positive. He seemed so relentlessly positive about everything. And you know, I mean. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I have a, I'm certainly not a mountaineer, uh, but I have a very good friend of the family who's uh, quite an active mountaineer. Um, and in a lot of ways, I'm kind of imagining them as very similar people. I mean, just an extremely positive guy. I mean, just kind of really one of the just nicest people you've ever met. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, behind this, there is also like this real intensity and like those things are kind of connected somehow. Yeah. Um that's like he said, you know, I have a temper and if I didn't have a temper, um, I wouldn't be doing this. Um, the Icelandic for, for word is, is scop, which is maybe a little bit, there's a nuance there that, that maybe doesn't translate to the English. 
but yeah, it's this sort of, uh, you know, in terms of his own character, it was this like these two sides of the coin that were equally indispensable. It was this sort of cheeriness and optimism and this sort of feeling of being perfectly fine with being alone for long stretches of time, but at the same time, this quite dogged determinism. I have to imagine also when you have um, climbed massive peaks with frostbite, uh, the little worries of the everyday uh, tend to kind of get put into context. And uh, maybe if you're late a couple minutes picking up your kids from school, uh, things might not bother you quite as much. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. And I mean, I imagine that, I mean, that's one of the things that during my research of this piece was, uh, I felt that a lot of people mentioned was that, you know, the, the emotional extremes and the highs of being on a mountain are so great that, you know, it's settling into ordinary life is probably, you know, almost excessively mundane um, when compared to other people who don't um, practice extreme sports of any kind. I guess we're sort of less or more inured to it, you know. But, yeah, that's certainly it. Well, you know, I mean, it was maybe one of the smaller moments in the piece, but, I mean, something that really interested me um is there's this description of his kind of first mountaineering feat, and he's on Mont Blanc, but he feels nothing. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a weird way in which that's really relatable, actually. Um, You know, we're all kind of always looking for, you know, maybe experiences not as extreme uh, as alpine mountaineering, but, you know, just looking for these things that are going to make us happy. And it's like, yeah, this is the thing that's going to make me happy. This is the thing, like this next thing is going to be the thing. Um, And, you know, even this really remarkable feat, completing it and kind of still having this kind of lack there. I don't know. That that, that was just a really interesting moment to me. Because, I mean, like, like, like we like to think of mountaineers as just kind of operating at the highest level of human achievement period. And there's maybe this way in which like, yeah, I mean, climbing one of these, uh, world famous peaks is kind of like, that's it. You know, like you climb one of these peaks and you're just happy forever or something. Right. <laughs> Obviously that's kind of a simplistic way to put it. Right. But I don't know. I mean like that, that, that was kind of, uh, really interesting to me. Yeah. And, and there's actually, uh, an additional dimension to that, Anecdote, and uh, one of the reasons that um, I made explicit mention of it was that um, you know after he ascends to the to the summit, he feels nothing. But then he he adds um, later on that you know, it wasn't until he descended the mountain and he started sort of sharing the trip and getting feedback that you know that feeling of accomplishment sort of settled in, which. Um, you know, points to another sort of aspect of our times, you know, this sort of curation of your life and and sharing it. And, you know, cynics may point to a certain exhibitionist tendency or, you know, receiving gratification from the approval or the the sort of the cheerleading of uh, other people, which I found extremely interesting as well because... I think that's a very human tendency as well of like 
especially in our day and age of, you know, you, you do something and then the instinct is to immediately somehow communicate and telegraph that thing, what you did, and, and then that's when the feeling sort of sets in of like, yes, it's not enough to do this, but I also have to share it with other people, which is interesting. So, of course, we know how the story ends uh, in tragedy. Um, what can kind of tell us about what's happened since? Um, I know that there were some updates recently about maybe an expedition uh, to recover his remains. Yeah, so uh, Lina Moe, his um, his uh, former wife, his widow, they um, she sort of had made it known that the family wanted to reclaim his body and to transport it back home to Iceland um, as a sort of closure and to uh, hold, hold some kind of funeral ceremony. But unfortunately, the expedition that was launched in, I believe, late July was unsuccessful, and so they were unable to retrieve his body, so it's still there um, on the side of K2. Um, yeah, so that's where things stand at the moment, as I understand. Well, thank you for that, Ragnar. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, Iceland's longest-running English-language magazine, focusing on nature, politics, and community. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts.